from the heart of Dubai, where tomorrow is being built today to the world. Welcome to the CTO Show with Mehmet. Here, we redefine technology and reimagine possibilities. With Mehmet, delve into the riveting realms of AI, cybersecurity, and digital technology. Experience the thrilling highs and lows of startups. Immerse yourself in the spirit of entrepreneurship and witness the future of business innovation being written in real time. Now, without further ado, let's tune in and explore the future. Hello and welcome back to a new episode of the CTO Show with Mehmet. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me Ed. Ed, thank you very much for joining me today. The way I love to do it, I keep it to my guests to introduce themselves because, you know, there's no one else that can do someone as better than themselves. So the floor is yours, Ed. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Um, really quick intro. Ed Federici, I am the CTO of AppFire. Um, I have been, gosh, coding or in some form of technology for over 30 years now. Um, I've had a, a great combination of a startup experience with companies as small as four. Um, and I've had the experience with huge companies like Salesforce, where I was the CTO of the Salesforce Marketing Cloud with 20,000 people. Um, I love technology. I, I love developing software. I love elegant solutions. I think of a good piece of software in the same way people think of a good book or a good movie. They're entertaining. They're fun to see. I just get a lot of pleasure out of software that is uh, well-written and solves a, a meaningful problem for the people who use it. Great. Uh, and what a, what a long uh, history, I would say, Ed. I think you have seen it all. So the first thing I want to ask you, because you, you've been doing this for quite some time. So, and you're in this, the SaaS domain. So let's talk first about SaaS, you know, and how things have changed or, you know, went from, you know, back in the days, I think now SaaS is quite some, not new anymore. It's not like something new, but always we have seen, you know, some also new trends. So how have you seen this transition during this period of time? That's a, a great question. Um, the very first company I worked for as a, as a C-level contributor um, was before SaaS was a thing. It, it was founded in 98. Um, that's not, not true. It was founded in 90. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit farther there. And we were called application service providers back then, but we were essentially a cloud-based solution that provided um, online uh, assessment and testing for employment purposes uh, to any class we wanted. And so it was web-based uh, architecture. And back then, there, that was before Salesforce, really. And that was uh, before SaaS was a common terminology. And everything has developed since then. The biggest change I've seen is the willingness of companies to adopt SaaS. Even when I was at Salesforce, which wasn't that long ago, it was only 12 years ago, there was a resistance to using software services that were outside of your own four walls and outside of your firewall. Um, and there was real debate whether or not people would be willing to put the their data and their uptime and all those things in the hands of a nebulous cloud, right? And that certainly has become common. The government has stuff in the cloud. Now the CIA has stuff in the cloud. The biggest companies in the world run in the cloud. So that evolution of acceptance has been phenomenal. 
in back in the day, the, the things we coded that provided for scalability, uh, like horizontal scalability off, off of virtualized infrastructure or asynchronous services are now for free in the cloud, right? You don't have to invent them. They are, they come out of the box for you. So it's really enabled software developers to focus less on the mechanics and more on the problem space. And I think it's really done a great job of allowing people to focus on feature set and differentiation and value over the underpinnings of what makes software work. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, people always uh, think that, you know, uh, it's something new and, you know, we remind them that, you know, such kind of, it was not called the cloud, but, you know, offering a service of a software as a service and actually people, you know, maybe they agree or they don't agree with me. I say back in the days when we used to have the mainframe. So the mainframe used to be like kind of a, a, a cloud, you know, if, if, if I can mention, and because you used to have only the terminals and then we came back to the same thing. Now, Edward, I'm also curious to know about your, your, your current, uh, you know, uh, with, with AppFire, like with your current company. Um, you focus more on, you know, like something which is really related to productivity, right? So if you can explain to me about, you know, what was the story behind AppFire and what you guys are trying to solve and uh, you know, a little bit about the journey in, in AppFire. Sure. So AppFire is kind of a unique company in many ways. And I know that every company thinks it's unique in some ways, but fundamentally what we do is we make the feature set of what we call ecosystems. And the ecosystem is Atlassian's Jira or Atlassian's Confluence, Azure DevOps, Salesforce, Monday.com, whatever. Then we make that feature set better by filling in that interstitial space where key features are missing. But we also enable communication across those tool sets. And what we really do is enable knowledge workers to work more effectively and more collaboratively. So one of our key tenets is that teams choose tools. So it doesn't matter if your marketing department wants to work in Monday and your engineering department wants to work in Atlassian and your finance department wants to work in Microsoft and Salesforce, we give you the ability to combine that data together, visualize it, act on it. And almost more importantly, we fill in feature gaps inside those ecosystems so that the tools you use are better and they're better at communicating with each other. That's great. So, but this will bring the next question. So you have to deal with a lot of, you know, integrations in this case, right? So from, I would say, you know, feasibility perspective, and one of the, maybe you will agree with me, Ed, one of the biggest challenges usually I hear from, um, you know, technology executives in, 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 uh, in companies that, you know, they have acquired all these, you know, tools and then they figured like out, even like also there's the shadow IT part also of it because, you know, everyone brings their own tool. So how, you know, like you can, you know, get all these things together and then make the integrations more easy. Like if, if you know, like can shed some light on, on you know, the, I would say the techniques or like what are the technologies that you use to, to get this uh, piece together? Sure. So let's use some specific examples. So let's take Jira Service Manager in Salesforce. That's a pretty common use case. You have a support team that's using JSM to provide front-end support to your clients. You have a sales or a go-to-market team that's using Salesforce to interact with those clients. 
those two sets of data combined together offer greater value to you as a company because you understand everything there is to know about a client when you compare their usage of the tool set and the issues they're having or the questions they're asking with them as a client, right? Contract renewal dates, size of contract, what they bought, that kind of stuff. Having a bi-directional integration between JSM and Salesforce allows everyone to work in the tool that they care about most, that they're most familiar with, most comfortable with, but have access to all of the data. So one of the use cases we would have is an update to Salesforce is then pushed through the integration to JSM and the support ticket and vice versa. So that way a support person has great 360 degree awareness of a client and the person from the go-to-market team is interacting the client knows what's happening in that client's life on a day-to-day -day basis. It gives you the opportunity to provide higher quality, more complete service to that client. In that case, Salesforce has a very well-defined uh, structure for integration and so does the Atlassian system. And so that's a custom integration between Salesforce and Jira. One of the things we look at because new tools come online all the time. And like you said, there's that shadow IT where people may be using non-standard tool set is how do we have integrations that are highly robust, bi-directional across many things. And it's really a case by case basis. So as we go into an ecosystem or look at something um, that's our applications would interact with, we look at how robust API is, how thorough of an inter, uh, integration we can have. And we'll either do a direct integration or potentially use a third-party tool to do the integration. But we don't have one set of tools to do it. We have a, a, a kind of best-in-breed, best-of-case scenario where every integration is treated uniquely. That's uh, exactly, you know, what I, I was, the answer that I was waiting for. And I asked it, you know, on purpose because, you know, I get this question a lot, Ed, honestly. Now, how this, you know, also can be utilized because especially, as you know, after the pandemic, everyone shifted to the hybrid remote, uh, uh, you know, standard, I would say. So how this also, you know, have helped, uh, you know, the customers that you work with in adapting this either fully robot or hybrid, uh, you know, work standard. Yes. So FR itself is a, is a hybrid work environment um, and it's global, right? So we don't just have people who do or do not come to an office. We have teams in, I think, 15 countries, right? And so that highly distributed workforce is essential to how we do business. And we think of it as a force multiplier for us. And so the challenges that companies face post-pandemic are challenges that we've been dealing with since inception because of the way that we were structured. And our tool set allows that collaboration to be of highest quality possible because of those integrations between tools so that you are getting the information in something like real time, right? The tool set you work in is being updated with the tool set the rest of your uh, company or departments work in and is facilitating the communication that used to occur in the hallway, in the conference room, in those interstitial moments when you were all co-located. So it really fills in the gap of those informal discussions that were occurring. And now we're doing it through tool set, right? And so another common use case would be an integration to a tool like Slack, where something occurs in an application or in an ecosystem, and that triggers an event that puts it into Slack, right? That message in Slack is a, 
great analogy for passing someone in the hallway and being able to say, hey, did you see this issue? Did you talk to this person? And so our tool set and its ability to integrate multiple tools together with notifications and data transfer closes kind of the space that's introduced by remote work and global work. Yeah, so that's a great use case, I would say also, Ed. Um, you know, when I was preparing, you know, I've seen like, you're multi-phase and you have a lot of experience, Ed, so I want to get as much as possible. Now, one of the things I, I noticed, and, you know, I get this also, you know, as I said, uh, from, from your bio when I was preparing, so one of the things, you know, you, you've done uh, during your, your career is you had to deal with a um, situation where there is a merger and acquisition kind of a transaction. And as, as someone on the technology leadership side, you know, you need to make sure that you have to align, you know, the culture and, you know, how the team we fit together. So... You know, I never, you know, ask this on the show, like, although like I had some CTOs who, who were like um, from the same journey, but if you can, you know, a little bit shed some light also about, let's say, let's call them best practices or maybe what are the essential, I would say, things you should do to make sure that you have a smooth transition, especially, you know, because in, in tech, you know, because one company would be using something, the other company would be completely using something else. So how, and of course, there's a cultural factor also as well. So how, how did you manage this? And what are like some of the best practices you can share with us today? Um, that's a wonderful question. Um, and it's a really robust question because there's so many things that play into that. So just to provide some context, over the last two years, AppFire has acquired about 25 companies. So we oh, wow. A lot of M&A. We've done small companies of a few people, larger companies of a hundred people. Um, I've also had the experience, you know, the company I worked for, Exact Target, which was about a thousand people, was acquired by Salesforce, which is like fifteen thousand people. So I've I've acquired and I've been acquired. And I've been on both sides of that. And for me, the thing that it always boils down to is people and culture, right? Because if you get the people and culture match wrong, it's never going to work. If you get the people and culture match right. No matter what challenges you face post-acquisition, it will generally work because you are aligned on values. So one of the, the key things we do at AppFire is, yes, we do acquisition. That's accretive to EBITDA and revenue and grows our footprint appropriately in whatever ecosystem we care about. But that is almost secondary to our desire to acquire a company that has people in it who, who match our core values. Uh, two of our top core values are be human and add to the awesome. So when we go into an acquisition scenario, we really look at, are these folks who we want to sit next to and work with every day? Are they people who put other people first? Are they people who will add to the awesome that is already at that fire? And if that's true, then we look at the financials and we look at the market fit and those type of things. So generally what, what really happens, especially if it's a smaller company being acquired by a larger company, is you have a group of really entrepreneurial people doing multiple things, wearing multiple hats, who are just with all of their effort, forging either a new path, creating new software, building new things. And then they join a, a larger company and that larger company has different processes, different systems, uh, more well-defined groups. So a great example is the CEO of a startup might be doing sales and marketing and a little bit of finance 
and all these different things. And then when you join a larger company that has departments that does that, they take that from you in a sense and say, okay, well, finance will now do all of your finance. Marketing is going to handle all your marketing. And the remit of this person who is an intense entrepreneur begins to shrink in a way that can make them feel like they've lost control. So a, a key uh, variable to success is as those founders enter your business, you must challenge them with opportunity to be as entrepreneurial as they were, to contribute as much as they were, even though the breadth of what they're doing may shrink as legal gets taken by someone else or the finance does. You have to give them the opportunity to have an outlet for what made them a successful entrepreneur and allow them to build a company you were interested in acquiring. You know, good point. And this is just triggered something quickly in my head, but don't you think at like such uh, entrepreneurs, they should, when the moment they are accepting to negotiate, let's say a deal with the other counterpart, don't you think that they should know, especially if they've been acquired by someone much larger than them? There's, so that's, that's another good question. There's a euphoria that occurs as acquisition is about to uh, happen. So if you think about it as from the time you sign the LOI, you go through due diligence, you're acquired, you begin to land your company. There's just a lot happening in everybody. It's kind of like your first date. Everybody puts on their base, best face. They are on their best behavior. Everything is perfect. And you're in this courting relationship where both sides want to be the one the other side chooses. And so misset expectations can occur then, uh, uh, and almost an unfounded optimism can occur then where everything is going to be perfect and you see all these opportunities and then reality sits in as you're a business on the other side. So I think it's very important for the acquirer and the acquiree to be honest about what the expectations are, about what the future will look like, what roles people will take on so that you don't have this trough of disillusionment post acquisition. Because if you think about it as the founder, you're going to work really hard during that due diligence phase, many late nights, weekends to be emotionally exhausting. You're going to join. There's going to be this high of the announcement, this excitement. Then you're going to do the very hard work of integrating your company into the new company. And that is equally emotionally exhausting. And if you have misset expectations through that journey, it can be really devastating to you on a, just on a psychological basis, and it can be a high demotivator. So it's really important for both sides to put their cards on the table, be honest about what they want, what expectations are realistic, and then go into that. I think many entrepreneurs, especially when you're below like five, $50 million in revenue, do not have a very realistic uh, appreciation for what it's going to mean to be acquired. You've been your own boss for maybe 10 years. You've made every decision yourself. And all of a sudden you have a boss and you have to realign yourself to what it means to show up to work every day. And you know, the thing I notice usually these founders, they don't stay much after the acquisition. So you see if they have this, what we call the serial entrepreneur profile. So, so maybe they will stay for maximum I've seen, you know, two years. And then you see that they, they went and they started something else. Uh, and I read a lot of books and it seems like this is the trend. So, uh, or the guy, you know, said, okay, enough is enough. I'm going to go retire. I'm not in tech. You know, they disappear for quite some time. Yeah. And because I think this has come, especially if they are first time founders at like, I see like the first time founders, you know, they, of course, like it's their first, um, 
entrepreneur, you know, like they are taking it as their baby. So there is a, this, you know, relationship part. So, yeah, but, uh, but I think the point you mentioned about the culture and, you know, the fitting between the teams, I think this is the key for making it, uh, you know, a successful transaction at the end of the day. So great insight from, from, from you here. Now, of course, now I will bring a topic that everyone talks about and I'm aware of that, the AI thing, right? So we, we are in the age of AI, you know, we entered that. Uh, so back to what you do currently with, with Amplifier. So what are your thoughts on, you know, integrating AI in order to do like new innovations and how this is now important to keep, you know, companies agile and I would not say only agile, actually they can stay robust in front of all these rapid changes that's happening very, very fast. Okay, that is a complicated question. I will do my best to answer uh, someone. <laughs> um, obviously, with the invent of the recent large language models and this a huge acceleration of AI, the opportunity is phenomenal, right? There's just a massive expanse of uncharted territory that you can take your application. I think of it in some ways. Um, my favorite Thai restaurant here has about 200 items on the menu. And every time I go in, I'm overwhelmed by what could I possibly do? right? Which one am I going to eat today? And that's true with the opportunity with AI right now. There's so many different places that you could put it inside your application. You really have to be exceptionally thoughtful about which ones you're going to pursue because you can't pursue all of them, right? And for us, we like to build software people actually use, right? And so there is some flashy stuff. If we're, if we're uh, pursuing that press release to say that we have AI, or there's the stuff that adds true meaningful value. And we want to make sure it's true meaningful value. Right. Um, and as you go through that journey as a company and look at things, there's a lot to consider about compliance, about data integrity, about intellectual property concerns, as you adopt these models that you need to be very conscientious of before you, um, introduce it to your, your client base. Cause you're the client's cure. You're the curator of the client's data set of their integrity of their reputation as they use your product. Then you've not done your upfront due diligence you may put yourself at risk of harming them in some way unintentionally. So you need to pick the right thing to do that offers maximum value. You need to investigate it to make sure it's the right tool to use. And then as you implement it, you do it. Uh, for us, there are a couple of use cases that are um, just natural, right? And exceptional for us to do. AI today does a great job of telling you what the right next action is. And in some ways, AI today is just an exceptional type of search engine. So if you think about a use case in support where I'm calling in because I'm having a problem configuring your tool or in some of our tool set, there's, you write code snippets to make them work. Maybe I don't know how to do that. If you go ask a, an LLM, how do I write this command in AppFire's CLI tool? It'll give you perfect syntax back. It'll solve that problem for you. It is a great use case that accelerates your understanding of how to use the product and does it in a way that is as good as or better than what a human being would do, right? The same is true um, in the case of uh, early deflection of support cases. When someone comes in to ask a question, if they can ask a really intelligent uh, AI model how to do it, they may get a faster resolution and you'll pass fewer support cases down to individual people to, to take on. From a product perspective, 
we really care about building AI. So we have over a hundred applications. So if you think about how AppFire is built, we're in multiple ecosystems. We have multiple applications in every ecosystem. They do disparate things. They might be ITSM related or DevTool related or publishing related. We want to create a platform centric AI tool set that all of our applications can pull on so that when we do find a use case that's awesome, it can be adopted across the entire application set as quickly as possible and offer that value to all clients relatively simultaneously. Great. And, you know, I know like I, I, the question was a little bit loaded. Now from any company perspective, any organization perspective, you know, how important is to at least at bare minimum, you know, to, to understand how they can leverage AI. I'm talking to a lot of people and, and the problem is the things are moving so fast and, you know, CIOs, CTOs, and I'm talking about like just normal, uh, you know, enterprise companies and even mid-sized companies. And they are telling me, you know, we are not able to be, you know, up to speed with all the things are, are happening. And there is like an overload of knowledge that's coming to us. So again, because, you know, you, you, you've been, you know, in the technology leadership for a long time. And, and I think you can also tell us some, maybe some advice for, for these CTOs or CIOs where they can start, how they should approach this fast changing uh, environment around us. Yes. So th that's a real problem, right? The, the evolution of AI is so rapid. A decision you make about which tool set to use, what problem to solve, may be obsolete and wrong in three months, if not sooner, right? Um, one of the pieces of advice I got really early in my career from an early mentor was that a CTO's role or a portion of a CTO's role is to ensure that as new technologies emerge, you pick the ones that are fundamental to the future success of your business. You can't miss a key opportunity where a paradigm shift is occurring. AI is clearly one of those paradigm shifts. You have huge players in Google and Microsoft and others introducing tools of exceptional quality, right? And so the way we would approach it and the way that I think many people should approach it is we've defined the problem we want to solve. We research the tools that exist in the moment. We pick one and we move forward with the realization that due to the rapid evolution of that space, we will likely have to rewrite that sooner rather than later to take advantage of advancements in the AI space so that that tool continues to be as robust as the technology allows it to be. So with so much change on the, the tool set side, you have to be willing to adopt that much change on the development side to stay current. That's great uh, advice again, Ed. And, you know, I want to talk about like, from your point of view, other than this fast changing, you know, uh, technology, what are the major challenges that CTOs and technology leaders are facing today? And, you know, other than, you know, this AI getting very fast, what are other trends, let's say, or challenges you're, you're seeing in this space? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think there's a couple of categories of that. One is on the, just the business side, business strategy side. We are in a macro global economic environment that's a little bit challenging. So I see a lot of companies, I mean, you've seen the massive layoffs that occurred at different companies across the last year. And so the CTOs are being pressed to develop more, do more without increasing expense, right? And so there's this 
this push and pull of, hey, we want to continue to be competitive, to grow our competitive set, but do it with the same amount or fewer people. That's a huge challenge for a technology executive to be able to meet both of those goals simultaneously. What's great is there's a lot of tool set that's coming that allows you to do that. Portions of that are AI, portions of that are better tools to understand um, software engineering metrics and what your teams are doing and those type of things, right? And so I think there's that pressure there to be kind of a, a, a business executive as a CTO and really drive business outcome. And the other piece is the technology portion of that. And the biggest challenge I see on the technology side isn't necessarily an emergent technology. It is the change of the workforce. The workforce is more remote. Um, the workforce is uh, of a different culture today where people want your company to be offering uh, social value, um, have a, a culture set that matches them where there's a great balance between uh, work life and personal life. And so as you have this today, this pressure of economic situation, and then this desire from the workforce to really be socially conscious, to be able to have time off and do things, those are in conflict with each other. Um, interestingly enough, just this week at, here at AppFire, there was a Slack post from the executive team as we move into the holiday season that we want people to take time off. We want people to have that balance. We strongly encourage people as they take their time off to remove Slack and email and calendar from their phone so that they, when they're gone from work, they're maximizing that opportunity and enriching their lives so that when they come back to work, they're truly refreshed and replenished, right? People who have robust, fulfilled, exciting lives outside of work tend to bring that spirit to work to make you a better company. So as you see trends occur, I don't know that emergent technologies are the biggest challenges for a technology executive. It's really changing workplace culture and changing economic conditions that you have to be on top of to ensure that you have an engaged workforce and you're optimizing for what's happening in the world today. Uh, this is a very holistic view, Ed, and uh, I think, again, it's, it's very insightful because the problem is if you don't look at it from that perspective, and I've seen people do it wrong and they get stuck on the technology part without looking at the uh, you know, bigger picture as we can, can see. And you know, uh, honestly, like, uh, I applaud you know, this, this culture that you have at AppFire like by telling people remove you know, the Slack, email. You know. And even sometimes, even I discuss on this show something that related to technology, I bring people who talks about like mental health and this kind of stuff. Right. And they say, yeah, you need to do this from time to time as a technologist in general, and even as a leader yourself. Now, Ed, one thing, and I, I believe, you know, the majority of the, the audience, some of them, they come to me and say, hey, like how we can become a CTO in the first place and how we can become a better CTO. And I'm sure like you can tell us a few things about that. Sure. Um, so I think, one of the things I will say to every manager that works for me is that to be an exceptional engineering manager, you have to understand the business. You have to understand both it from a product perspective and my ask of every engineering manager is that you're as good at understanding and demoing the product as your product counterpart is, but you also have to understand the financials, right? Every company is fundamentally in the business of making money. That's why companies exist. And they have different remits, they have different social standings, all those type of things. But you have to understand how the decisions you make as a technology manager 
impact your clients and impact your business on a product and finance level, right? So you should understand basic SaaS financial metrics. You should understand your client use cases. If you can't articulate five to 10 core use cases of how your clients use your tool set, you really don't have the right skill set to be making technical decisions about how it's architected. So for someone to grow from just like a, an M1 manager up to CTO, their understanding of the product set, the business metrics needs to go from nascent to well understood so that they can make decisions that foster growth of the company, satisfaction of clients, engagement with software. Yeah, that's really great uh, advice there. And, uh, you know, I'd like a lot of people, they, they, they think sometimes it's uh, an easy job to do. And I tell them, no, it's not. <laughs> I'm not a CTO myself, by the way, by any mean, but I mean, like I'm, I'm a technologist, you know, I come from a technology background. I, I work for, you know, technology leaders and I've seen, you know, the time and you know, exactly the same thing you mentioned. And actually, it's an advice I give it to anyone in technology, regardless if they want to go to the path of being part of a leadership team. And they say, you need to understand the business. Like if you, you cannot understand the business, you know, people will not understand what you're talking about. And this is the, you know, communication is very important. You can articulate this business need over there. Um, maybe now a question, which is like, and, and again, like I, I'm, I'm not trying to, to make a point here or something like that, but and like, where, what do you think, you know, is good for someone who want to take this entrepreneurship journey later to start their career within a startup themselves or to go and work for a large company and learn how things get done? So which, which path do you think is more uh, appropriate for someone who would be seeking to become an entrepreneur? That's an awesome question. I get asked that question a lot too. And there's really two paths to take. And I think it depends on what kind of entrepreneur you want to be. There are people who are just complete visionaries and they have this idea and they have this blazing passion for the idea and nothing will stop them from achieving that. Right. And those are the people who disrupt a market in a really meaningful way. That's one path to take where you don't really have the skill set outside of the idea. And then you have to grow into that skill set. What I have seen people do that's really successful is go work at an established company of some kind and work in multiple groups, do a year as a salesperson, do a year as an engineer, do a year in some other function. And that allows you to really understand holistically how a business works and prepares you to be an effective CEO of a startup because you understand how all those pieces come together to drive a business forward. And you can make smart financial decisions. You can build a sales team when it's time that is effective. And you're, you're not a single skill set person. You're a multi-skill set person. And so those two things are different paths to the same destiny. The, the intense visionary is, I think, born that way. There's someone who has just made that way by nature. They have something they're passionate about. They think of ideas no one else has. The other one is a more methodical, pragmatic, kind of scientific approach where you learn how things work, you find your idea, and then you execute it with a playbook. Both I think are equally valid and depend on the personality of the individual. And I've seen both be very successful and I've seen both fail. If you're the visionary, surround yourself with people who are excellent at the things that they do. And if you're the multifaceted individual, 
surround yourself with some visionaries who can bring that passion and fire to your team. Yeah, and I think I would say always, and I repeat it, and my guests will repeat it, and I think you will agree, Ed. I think failure is part of the journey. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> there, is, there is no escape from, from failing. Okay, only few lucky ones, you know, they, from, they succeed from first startup they do, and, you know, they continue their career this way. But majority of the time, we will fail, we will do mistakes, which is fine, I would say. Um, and we covered great things today, but, you know, any final, I would say, thoughts, anything, you know, you, you want to share with me today, with the audience that I, maybe I didn't uh, ask you about? Actually, I will click down onto your last comment a little bit. Failure is, sure. failure is very key to success. If you're not failing, you're not taking enough risk, right? And being able to internalize that failure, grow from that failure, learn from it is essential to becoming really, really good at what you do. Um, there's a phrase I like that's called fear is a liar and fear of failure is going to prevent you from being exceptional. So you really have to go all in and be willing. You have to be vulnerable and be willing to suffer that emotional impact of failure because that is how you, you know, it's an iron sharpens iron type of experience. You become really great at things by learning how not to do them as much as you learn how to do them. And so I, I like my ideal profile for a manager in my group is someone who takes calculated risk and is not afraid to make a mistake and fail. Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, Ed, thank you very much. You know, it was a really great, um, you know, advices and insights from you. And we talked about a lot of things with you today. I know like uh, people can find the, uh, you know, the website, I will put that in the show notes, but if you want to tell us where they can get more information about AppFire and about yourself also as well. Sure. So appfire.com, uh, we just literally relaunched our website. It's exceptional. It's really nice. If you want to learn about us, it's just www.appfire.com. Great. I will make sure that, uh, I will put this in the show notes and, um, you know, Again, thank you very much, Ed, for the time today. This is how I usually I end my episodes. So for uh, if the audience, if you're first time here, thank you for passing by. I hope you enjoyed. If you're listening on your favorite podcasting app, don't forget to subscribe. If you're watching this uh, online, also please subscribe. And if you are one of the you know loyal people who keep listening and send me their comments, please, 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 please keep sending them. Please keep sending your notes. I love reading them, suggestions, feedback, something you like, you don't like. It doesn't matter. I love reading feedbacks a lot. And uh, if you are interested also to be on the show, don't hesitate to reach out to me. You have some experience you want to share with us. You are building something special you want to share about. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me. We'll find a way and we'll find the time to record together. And thank you very much for tuning in. We'll meet again very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hit that subscribe button. Share the show with your tech-savvy friends and fellow entrepreneurs. And leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Your support means the world to us.